Warning! The following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Welcome to the Canyon of Heroes, a beautiful stretch of Broadway lined with plaques that mark each time a ticker tape parade was given here and who it was for. I love the architecture down here, the clash between modern and classic. And I love that this is what is considered a canyon out here. (laughs) I also love the fact that we have a street recognizing heroes in the middle of one of the richest places in the world, Fidei in Lower Manhattan, just seems like an oxymoron, don't you think? Given how the financial world has been painted the last few years. That's fair. But it wasn't always like that. No, no. Back when these older buildings housed firms that were more, quote, respectable, Mm. things were painted in a better light. Of course, all I could be was a secretary and (laughs) a sex symbol, but that's neither here nor there, apparently. Point is, history is always changing, but also etched in stone, whether it be a skyscraper or a plaque. That was kind of deep. A little inspirational. I know, right? I don't know what's wrong with me. I I think I need some lunch. Come on, quick. Let's go to Toasties before I start being optimistic. to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the classic show, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. You're in it. You're in the brotherhood of man, the benevolent brotherhood of man. And because of that, you can join us as we discuss our show today, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. This classic tale of climbing the corporate ladder, falling in love, and 1960s fodder along the way has been received and redone at theaters across the country and right here on Broadway. But before we can step into the boardroom, we have to start at the bottom of the totem pole. The musical was written in 1961 and was based on a book of the same title by Shepard Mead, written in 1952. The original production opened at the 46th Street Theater in October of 1961 and ran for 1,417 performances. The show won seven of the eight Tony Awards it was nominated for and the 1962 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. One of the awards the show won was for Best Producer going to Cy Fuhr and Ernest Martin. It also won the 1961 Grammy for Best Theater Album. 
There was a revival in 1995 that took place in the Richard Rogers Theater, which was the same theater the show originally premiered in. It starred Matthew Broderick and Megan Mullally. This production was nominated for four Tony Awards and won Best Leading Actor for Matthew Broderick. The original production was produced by Cy Fuhr and Ernest H. Martin, who has had great success with another hit on Broadway, Guys and Dolls. The original choreographer was an obscure dance director named Hugh Lambert. It became clear during the rehearsal process that his creative abilities were used up in one dance number. Bob Fosse was brought in to replace him, but Fosse didn't want to damage Lambert's career, so they kept his number in the show, and Fosse took credit as musical staging by. As we switch gears and head to the revival most recently on Broadway, which is the production we will most be referring to on this episode, why don't we introduce our design team? The book was by Abe Burroughs, Jack Weinstock, and Willie Gilbert. Music and lyrics by Frank Lozier. Directed and choreographed by Rob Ashford. Scenic design by Derek McLean. Costume design by Catherine Zuber. Lighting design by Howell Binkley. Sound design by John Weston. Hair and wig design by Tom Watson. Makeup design by Ashley Ryan. And aerial design by Sonia Rzepski. The show would arrive at the Al Hirschfeld Theater on March 27th of 2011, where it would run for a little over a year, closing after 473 performances on May 20th, 2012. The show would be nominated for eight Tony Awards that season and succeed at one for Best Featured Actor in a Musical for John Larroquette, who played J.B. Bigley. So, let's go and take care of some business. J. Pierpont Finch, a young window cleaner in New York City, reads the book How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying as he works. The book voice tells him that he will succeed if he follows the book's advice. He enters the worldwide wicket company searching for a job. Finch bumps into J.B. Bigley, the president of the company, who dismisses him to the personal manager, Mr. Bratt. Rosemary Pinkinton an ambitious young secretary helps Finch meet Mr. Bratt. Finch tells Bratt that Bigley sent him, and Bratt gives him a job in the mailroom where he works with Mr. Bigley's lazy, arrogant, and nepotism-minded nephew, Bud Frump. Rosemary dreams of a life with Finch in the suburbs. The fatigued workers rush to get to their coffee break. In the mailroom, Finch earns favor with the longtime head of the mailroom, Mr. Twimble, who tells him the secret to longevity at the company. Twimble is promoted to head of the shipping department and has to choose his replacement as head of the mailroom. The book warns not to stay in the mailroom too long, so Finch recommends Frump instead of himself. Twimble is reluctant to promote the lazy Frump, but 
Frump promises to be a good employee. Twimble and Brat are impressed by Finch's apparent selflessness, and Brat offers him a job as a junior executive in the Plans and Systems Department, headed by Mr. Gatch. An extremely attractive, attractive but air-headed woman named Hetty LaRue, who is Mr. Bigley's secret mistress, is hired as a secretary. On her first day of work, the male employees are instantly attracted to her, but Mr. Bratt warns them against taking advantage of their employees. Finch learns that Mr. Bigley's secretary, Miss Jones, that Bigley is a proud alumnus of Old Ivy College. In the elevator at the end of the workday, Rosemary's fellow secretary, Smitty, helps her and Finch set up a date. Frump runs into Bigley and Hetty and realizes their relationship, and he blackmails Bigley into giving him a promotion. Finch arrives early Saturday morning and sets up the office, so it looks like he has been working all night. Bigley believes Finch's ruse, and Finch convinces Bigley that he too, is a proud alumnus of Old Ivy. And they sing the Old Ivy fight song. Bigley insists that Finch be given his own office and secretary, Hetty. With the book's help, Finch realizes that Bigley must be Hetty's advocate and sends her an errand to Gatch, knowing that Gatch will make a pass at her. Gatch falls for the trap and is dispatched to Venezuela, and Finch is promoted to his position as head of plans and systems. At a reception for the new advertising department head, Benjamin Burton Daniel Ovington, Rosemary hopes to impress Finch with her new Paris original dress. But all the other women arrive at the reception wearing the same dress. Frump schemes for Bigley to catch Finch kissing LaRue in his office. But after LaRue blackmails Finch into kissing her, he realizes he's actually in love with Rosemary. After some farcical complications, Frump and Bigley walk into the office just as Finch embraces Rosemary. Ovington is forced to resign when Bigley learns that he is a graduate from Northern State, Old Ivy's bittersweet rival. Bigley names Finch vice president in charge of advertising. Bigley leaves as Finch and Rosemary declare their love for each other, and Bud Frump vows revenge. Act 2 starts two days later. Rosemary has been neglected by Finch. She decides to quit, but her fellow secretaries convince her to stay because she's living their dream of marrying an executive. In the 1995 revival, the song Cinderella Darling um, was replaced with a reprise of How to Succeed, with the lyrics suggesting ways in which a woman can get a hold of a man's financial assets. The book warns Finch that because vice president of advertising is a bad position, he needs a brilliant idea. Bud Frump slyly tells Finch his idea for a treasure hunt, which Finch loves, unaware that Bigley has already heard the idea and rejected it. Finch shares the idea with Rosemary, who tells him that she'll stay with him no matter what happens. Hetty tells Bigley that she is unhappy as a secretary and is leaving for California. He begs her to stay and tells her he loves her, and she agrees to stay. In the executive washroom, Finch gives himself a pep talk 
while behind his back, the other executives and Frump plot against him. Finch presents his idea to Big Leap. He will hide 5,000 shares of company stock in each of the 10 offices around the country and give a television audience weekly clues as to their whereabouts. Bigley accepts this idea when Finch explains that each clue will be given by the scantily dressed worldwide wicket treasure girl, Miss Hetty LaRue. During the first television show, Hetty is asked to swear on a Bible that she doesn't know the location of the prizes. Hetty panics and reveals the locations to the entire television audience, which prompts the wicket employees to tear apart the offices looking for them. The book tells Finch how to handle a disaster. We suggest that your best bet is if you are the cause of the disaster is to review the first chapter of this book, How to Apply for a Job. The executives, including chairman of the board, Wally Womper, are waiting in Bigley's office for Finch's resignation. Rosemary again tells Finch that she'll stand by him no matter what. About to sign his letter of resignation, Finch mentions that he'll probably go back to washing windows. Womper is drawn to Finch as he too was a window washer, and they both had a book. Wally's book was a book of betting records. Finch blames the treasure hunt on Frump, also mentioning that Frump is Bigley's nephew. Womper is about to clean house from top to bottom when Finch steps in on everyone's behalf. Finch tells the executives that even though the business world is a place filled with betrayal and competitiveness, the worldwide wicket staff is like a family to him. Everyone is is spared except Frump, who is fired because he is Bigley's nephew. Bigley remains president. Womper retires to travel the world with his new wife, Hetty. And Finch becomes chairman of the board. Rosemary stands by his side and inadvertently inspires him to aspire for the presidency of the United States. Frump gets a job washing windows, swearing revenge against Finch. The, the end. end. So now let's discuss the parts of the show that we'd like that might need some help. Um... This was a fun show, and in fact, in reading the um, synopsis. the synopsis again, I forgot how much fun this was. Um, as we were uh, rushing to put this together, because I mean, this episode's going out a little bit late, but in rushing to put this together, um, I like was having those like foggy memories of the show. But then I was like, oh yeah, the dress number. I forgot about the dress number, and oh yeah, the mailroom. I forgot about the mailroom. You know, and I was just, and mm-hmm. and you know the um, so the the old Yale or you know, the old Ivy League thing, they're the groundhogs. Mm-hmm. But the rival schools, the chipmunks. Mm-hmm. And they're ridiculous with their hats and everything, like the mascots. And I'm just like, I forgot that this is just absolute ridiculousness at its best. It's satire at its best. Because it is making fun of like the business world in the best way possible. I mean, if you think about it, it's, the old, I mean, I, it, I think it still exists. But the business world is like a who's who. It's very nepo- nepotistic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I went to Dartmouth, Hale, Brown, whatever. Well, that's, that's not necessarily... Nepotism... Well, I know that it's, it's family, but you know what I mean? Like, if, if you had a qualified person from, let's say, the University of Nebraska, you know, mm-hmm. or University of Utah, but then you had someone who was just okay from Cornell or Yale or something, just some Ivy League or something that's uh, someone's alma mater, it could be... I don't want to rag on anyone's alma mater, but I'm just, you know, uh, Seton Hall or something. And they're like, oh, I'm going to hire for my alma mater, you know, even though they're not the best person. That's how the business world, like, existed. And 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 that's how promotions and that were, like, given out. And, and it wasn't the most qualified, you know. And, I mean, that like, we all know that's still the case today. But they made fun of that in the best way possible mm-hmm. uh, in this show. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, overall, this was just a fun, ridiculous, romping show you know I mean it's definitely it's a 60s show it's very 60s it wasn't necessarily my favorite but that's because I'm a strong feminist a strong feminist views well so yeah that's what I was going to say I mean that the opening scene we did where it was like you know I think business culture today is a lot more black and white a lot more strict and that probably is for a good reason there's a lot of good things that have come since then we were a little bit more fun lax back then but like you mentioned in the opening scene, all you were good for back then in the eyes of that was a secretary or a sex symbol. Or both. Yeah, I mean, you know, you didn't you didn't see any of these secretaries climbing the the ladder. However, I will say there is something to be said about Rosemary standing by Finch. There's always a strong woman, not behind, but next to a man succeeding. And I think that's an important thing to be said. And I don't know, I want to know if that was in the original script. Oh, that's I'll always a... stand by you. I'll always be next to you. I think that's an important, I think those words are important. Mm-hmm. I'll always be here for you and I'll always be next to you. Those are two, like that, that one word is important. Next to you is important because like I said, right there with any strong man in history, there should be a woman next to you, not behind. He never really liked the idea of a woman behind. Because I'm like, no, behind either suggests that she's pulling the strings or that she's hidden from view. And that's, I don't want a woman to be in that position. Next to means that she's on the same level. And that's where women deserve to be. That's feminism. That's equality. Men, women, same thing. Anyway. That's, that's not, not what this podcast, podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> but I know what you're getting at. Where this, is, this was not your cup of tea in the sense of, women are not put in that place of, in the right feminist place. Yeah, well, and I understand that the show was written before second wave feminism really gathered ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I can understand that, but that doesn't mean, you know, this has to be in my top ten. No. But that's just me personally. Um, I think it would be really good if we just kind of moved on to talking about the different elements, because while I was not the biggest fan of the story, story I did appreciate a lot of the design elements. Yeah, the set was really cool. Um, okay, so it was very 60s. You're going to hear this phrase a lot, because spoiler alert, this is a 60s show. It was very 60s, um, and it was a three-storied set, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was all these geometric shapes that were incorporated, especially like, I, I don't know what it is about the 60s and the hexagon. Six sides, <laughs> six decades, something there, someone out there, come on, go down the Reddit rabbit hole and figure that out for us. 
But, you know, there were all these geometric shapes that were used throughout, all these panels and stuff that were really great. The colors were everywhere. Um, it was really, really a, just a gorgeous, fully realized, full set. You felt like someone went down to the Fidei District here in New York, downtown New York, where like you've the got Fidei. the Fidei. The Fidei. I keep calling it the Fidei District. Financial District. I'm not going to be hip and abbreviate anymore. The Financial District, where we have like the World Trade Center and uh, the Woolworth Building and the Standard Oil Building. And they just took three floors of those buildings, the top. You know, you know, well, three separate floors, and they cut it like a cake, and you can look inside what's going on there. But it was like 1962 kind of thing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And I loved how Daniel Radcliffe starts the show um, by descending on a window washing seat from the rafters. So I, so here's the thing: this is a show that usually is done a lot by high schools. Mm-hmm. And this is four years after I'm out of high school. Well, I'm dating myself. This is two years after you're out of high school. Neither one of us had ever done this in high school. I'd never seen a high school production. So I knew nothing about the show. So the lights dim, the orchestra starts. Yay! And I'm waiting for, like, curtain to open and the show to begin. And down from above comes Daniel Radcliffe as Finch. On a freaking window washing seat, and I'm like... With a book. Yeah. And his back is to you, and he turns around to address you, and I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. You know. What do you think of the set? I mean, I really... Uh, I don't remember much of it. I just remember really crisp, clean lines. Mm-hmm. Um. But that's also very 1960s. That's also very musical theater comedy. Um, You know, having that contrast of the characters. um, And for me personally, I think the costumes were more memorable for me than the set. Yes. Um, And a lot of that has to do with, it's that clean cut Mad Men style suits that everyone wears, but they're in a million different colors. Plaid and bow ties everywhere. Yeah. Yes, I remember that. So we've obviously moved on to costumes. Yes, and the three-piece suits um, were, yeah, you're absolutely right. I when, they, when those men went into those dance numbers, especially when they would like open their arms and then spin, you really got the full look of those beautiful, beautiful costumes with just the touch of flair at the, at the, at the, mm-hmm. the boot. Just that tiny little mm-hmm. boot cut. Bell bottom yep. type flair. Well, and what's funny is a lot of people think that, you know, oh, we're just going to put people in suits. But when you make suits for dancers, there's a lot of hidden things that have to happen mm-hmm. so that you don't tear well, so the butt yeah, so the and so you don't tear the armpits. Yep. And so that to me is the really fascinating behind the scenes stuff that a lot of people don't get to yes. see. Yeah, yeah. These these suits that they wear on a Broadway show for dancers and that—that's something you're gonna go buy at the men's warehouse or something. Oh no 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 no! They're specially tailored for this stuff. Yes, because they have to be tailored to fit correctly, but then also have movement in the right places so that you know if you're a dancer going to do a toe touch in a three piece suit, you don't split the crotch. Exactly. And then you've got these beautiful suits and dresses that the women have. You got these you new know, like pencil skirts and that. But then you have—I do remember one where it's like. I want to say like a cinch waist, but then like kind of like a wavy at the bottom. Do you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? It's like a scalp bottom. Yes, 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 exactly. And they were just all very fitting. 
very, I mean, it is that 60s, and there's the pillbox hats, and the updos. The beehives. The Jackie O hair coming in. Mm -hmm. Tease it to Jesus. It's not quite Jackie O yet. Well, it was weird. We had, like, some Jackie O and not some Jackie O. So it was very loose about, like, when it was, but we knew it was 60s. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it was glorifying the 60s time frame rather than trying to recreate the 60s time frame. Yeah, rather than trying to, like, pinpoint a year there, it was, like... Sprinkle of 60s. Get mm-hmm. that essence of. So, and they were just so colorful. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that the lighting really helped to um, balance in those bright colors because it's a musical theater comedy. You have to have lots of brightness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they did that really well. They didn't have to use a ton of different gels because they were there to make the, the vibrancy was from the set and the costumes and the lights just enhanced it. Exactly. And, and what are we going to say about the lighting? It was very 60s. <laughs> um, I think you've basically summed up everything. I mean, it's it just complemented. The, all of these design, these three design elements really just worked in concert to, to p- present this palette, to present this, this aura that we were trying to feel that just created a beautiful backspace, that created a beautiful... Um, feeling for the actors to play in this world for the actors to play in you know the actors could do what they needed to do and sing what they needed to sing and create these these situations and they the costumes and the set and the light and everything else was able just to be and it and it added and emphasized it and worked so the actors didn't have to work to be like this is a male room no we already knew and they didn't have to set the time up it was less improv if that makes sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that was really great I want to bring in direction here for a moment because what I loved about the direction is it brought a story from another time and made it not only relevant but also feel modern. Um, and, and, and I know how, where you stand with the women's thing, but what I'm saying about this is, you know, we saw this as we were climbing out of the recession. And so to satirize big business, I thought this was the perfect time for the show. And more importantly, you've got the story of a window washer climbing up to be the chairman of the board. A rags and riches story. So this is obviously a dated show, and the director found a way to, to orchestrate all the design elements and this dated show, this dated story, and make it feel modern and make it feel relatable and make it feel relevant to the time when the, store, the show was put on. Mm-hmm. So that audiences, when they came to see it, yeah, it's a revival, and we get the idea that it's it's another time, but we leave the theater going, that could be me, or well, that could still that, happen today. Yeah, that that is still happening today, and mm-hmm. that it's very, you know, it's, we're not, we haven't come too far away from what this was. Right, and, and that's what, and I think that's kudos to the director, because you could have just taken what's been done or the material as it is and just put it up there and thrown some sexy stuff and been like, ta-da, there's a show. But making sure that everything worked together and it had that stimuli for that modern audience and it entertained us the way that we were used to, that's good direction. Because the director makes sure that his, their vision, excuse me, their vision is not only communicated, but that everyone, all these designers, all these actors, everyone's stuff as I said before, works in concert so that it all the overall story, the overall message is communicated. So I thought the director did a good job of that. 
And the music, I thought the music was memorable. It was fun. It was bouncy and joyful. Left you in good humor. Come on, the Brotherhood of Man, the it does dress get song. stuck in your head. Yeah, the, the alma mater songs. I mean, you know, it's just fun. There's no, like, I, I can't remember, like, super deep, heavy songs. I think it's just fun satirizing stuff. Obviously, Brotherhood of Man is the song that gets stuck in my head the most. Uh, I couldn't sing you much anything else. But I can recognize stuff. I mean, I, I, I can see Megan Mullally singing the dress song. Mm-hmm. But I can't quite sing it, and I'm not going to try. <laughs> you know. Um, but as I'm thinking of the Brotherhood of Man, I think of the choreography. Yes. Those arm movements and the dancing and the guys really going crazy, you know. it's it, The dancing, I remember being really brilliant. I remember... The movement's been very, very big throughout the show. Lots of extensions. Like, you know, we talked about in the costumes with the flared leg and everything. And these be- when, these, when these actors really open their arms and everything, getting to see the full costume. Well, that's because they were doing these big extensions, reaching for the sky or what have you, and these turns and stuff. There's just a lot of big movement. This was not... What's funny is Fosse came to help direct or choreograph it, right? In the original, yes. yeah. yeah. This revival didn't feel Fosse-esque because it was not these small... It didn't have that, like, Fosse trademark that you were looking for. It was explosive, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it it was such wonderful choreography. It really... The, the best way I can explain it is it was loud. And I like that. Loud choreography. Okay, I can yeah, see yeah. that. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it was fun. Go and... Um, YouTube, Brotherhood of Man, particularly the Tonys. And what I love about this number, here's how you know it's timeless. Anytime they do a like video montage of Broadway, um, they've done it for the Tony Awards. And then most recently when they did the, the Broadway's back thing that Oprah Winfrey narrated. Mm-hmm. And they get to the part, this is where we dance. They show clips from that number. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, there you go. There it is. That That's it. So... The show has had several notable performers, including Daniel Radcliffe, Daring Chris, Nick Jonas, John Larroquette, Tammy Blanchard, Michael Urey, Anderson Cooper, who was the narrator, just so everybody will know, uh, Robert Morris, Matthew Broderick, Megan Mullally, Victoria Clark, and Walter Cronkite. So now, let's talk about the impact this show had on theater and its history. So I think one of the biggest impacts is it was a Pulitzer Prize winner for drama. That was back in 1962. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to do a little bit more nosing around. I think I still will. um, I think it was the first musical, but don't quote me on that. But I know it's one of the few musicals to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Mm-hmm. Um, it, icon- it iconized and satirized corporate American culture. There weren't many musicals prior to this, and I would say even after this, that really placed itself in, in, in American culture, uh, a corporate culture, 
or satirize it. You know, uh, the ones that immediately come to mind, like right away, nine to five. You know, promises, uh, promises, promises, promises. Um, and then I'd start drawing a blank. You know what I mean? I mean, I think there were more plays. Yes, I definitely think more plays, but musicals is what I mean. You know, so, mm-hmm. um, and then it created this wonderful show that is accessible by all audiences for an all different theater. Like I mentioned earlier, like you know, when we were in high school, all sorts of high schools were doing it. We didn't, but high schools were always doing it. It's so a regional, community, Broadway. Everyone's doing it. This is a show that's doable at any level. You know. So it's it's an all-access show. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that, um, you know, like we talked about in a couple episodes ago, that not every show needs to be super impactful. Um, this show is was very impactful at its time and where it sits in the, hist- like in the history books. Mm-hmm. Um, is it something that there's still a lot of potential to, to update the script and present it in a way that... Yeah. Is less. Now, I think what would be really interesting... I know where you're going. I want to hear this. What I think would be really interesting is if you did a gender-swapped yes. version of the show just to kind of throw it into perspective. I also would love to see what they do if they, they did like a rewrite or a modernization of it. Just... Mm-hmm. I, this is the time for that kind of stuff. So I would love to see what, what someone like uh, a Dominique Masseau or... Um, uh, or Lynn Nonage or someone if they got a hold of the, the book and they just rewrote it a little see well, what they could do with it you know oh yeah well one of my favorite things about the time we're in now is you have so many you have such a dichotomy between um, people who are like America's progressive we're going forward and you have a lot of people who are like no America's good as it is we're gonna keep things the way they were we're gonna go back to a simpler time mm-hmm. um, and so I think to flip flop the roles would show us that in a lot of ways we haven't changed, uh-huh. but also in a lot of ways we have, and it's for the better. And that's what the purpose of theater is, is to hold the mirror up to society and be like, we're not judging you, we're just, we are the tellers of what things are. So we've kind of already alluded into the next part, which is societal impact. As I've said, it satirized corporate America, and at the time of us seeing this, as we were climbing out of the recession, it allowed us to paint Big business in this bad color, but in a laughable way. We went into a recession because of big business. We didn't go into a recession because, you know, poor people or people in poverty went into poverty. We It was malfeasance on the part of big business. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're someone who is wealthy or you own a big business, sorry about your lunch, like, that's the facts right there. So we were able to basically poke fun and shame big business, but in a laughable way. It wasn't so dramatic that, you know, it wasn't like junk where we just, you left the theater just so angry. You're just Mm -hmm. like, okay. Well, and I think that it's important to um, also remember that the American dream is that you can start at the bottom and work your way up. Exactly. And that's what this show is. Told the rags to riches. Exactly. And And I think that's a good societal impact. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, I think that that's something that, is, isn't going away anytime soon that Americans just love a story about you started from the bottom, now we're here. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah, so. no, no, but, but no, that's, that's right. I think anyone, anywhere, loves a story like that because mm-hmm. it's almost like the honest way of getting somewhere. You didn't inherit it, you earned it. So let's go to our last question. Is the show relevant? I think so. It's a great classic show and it leaves you with a good feeling. 
But that being said, at the heart of the show is the idea of greed, and that may not play well at this moment on Broadway. I feel like, collectively as a world society, we don't want to see greed on stage. We don't want to deal with greed. Greed is a really just huge negative. But also, it's still fun and satirical piece, and it would fit perfect on Broadway right now. We do need some good satire. But I like what you said earlier about flip-flopping the roles, and I think it's a perfect time to do that. And I think that would be where, um, of like its relevance would be, is if we could do a modernization of it. We've already got it with company, you know. Let's maybe do it with this. I'd like to see what they could do with that. Besides that, I think it's very relevant in like regional, community, college, high school, all of those theaters. I mean, it's good material for, um, all like you said, all access. You know, for people, because it has such a wide variety of casting you could do. Yes. For all ages. Um, and just, it's a really good community show because you can put it on with a lot of people who are all the same age or a varying span of ages. Yes. As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So, we had the good fortune to see the show at the Hirschfield back in 2011. Um, before we get to the stage door stories, I'm just going to say, I thought, and I'll say for both of us, we had an amazing time. It was a fun time, a good time. Um, our second show at the Hirschfeld, because mm-hmm. we'd seen Hair previously. Okay. So, you know, great time to see a show there. Um, but yeah, the show is amazing. The cast is amazing. We've already discussed all that. Well, after the show, we went out to go see, to do the stage door thing. Mm-hmm. Doing the stage door. And our show did have some big names, including Daniel Radcliffe and John Larroquette. We did get to meet both of them. We did get both of their autographs. Their playbills are safe and sound in our library. One day we will get a picture of our tomes of playbills <laughs> and uh, post them. But... Um, John Larroquette, very nice. Very sternly nice, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel Radcliffe, very nice as well, but he was rushed very quickly. Only signed the front row, and he, no pictures. But what I remember is they told everyone, like, if these barriers move, he we get him straight to the car, and that's that. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, yeah, well, because you had a lot of people there. And this is this is where I first started to realize you have people who remember someone just from a movie. Yes. Um, so, like, everyone was like, oh, it's Harry Potter, it's Harry and Potter. And they would call and, him that. they go, Harry, Harry. And I felt so bad for the guy. Yeah, because it's like he's not there being Harry Potter. No. It is Daniel Radcliffe who has just performed as a character named J. Pierrot Finchley. Or yeah. Finch. And so... Not finished. Sorry. Puffs the musical. Easy. <laughs> but you know what I mean? And so it was kind of when I started to realize that there is a good portion of people who can't let that go. Yeah. Um, and it was disappointing because I remember, this is the first time, okay, I at this point I hadn't seen any but the first Harry Potter movie. So that's all I knew Daniel Radcliffe from. And I was definitely going in with preconceived notions. And he blew me away. I was like... This dude who's known for Harry Potter really can act and, and sing, sing and, and dance. dance. I was like, man, I'm glad everybody knows him for Harry Potter, but man, you know, so I was amazed by that. Half those people in that line didn't even see the show. 
Right, and it's like, you know, we can get up on our on our high horse and say this, that, or the other about oh, it. Oh, I'll say it. You shouldn't be going to the stage door if you didn't see the show. But I but. think at the end of the day, one thing that I would love for us as a theater community to get back to is respecting the craft. And what yes. that means is when you're doing the stage door, you are not, that is a, a gift and a luxury and a pleasure. Yes. It is not an obligation or something that is owed to you. You bought a ticket, they owe you the performance, not what comes after the applause and the curtain comes up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But and, it, it was... and I think that that's where we need to go back to. And it was when we saw this kind of crazy, crazy rush of people at the show was what made me first start thinking about that because they... They gave a beautiful performance. The whole cast did. The whole company did. And for all these people acting like crazy zoo animals, it's like, no, we, we, we as humans need storytelling. And we as humans, um, you know, it's very hard for people to be vulnerable in front of a crowd. It's one thing to be vulnerable in front of a camera where there's maybe... 20, 30 people around you. It's a whole nother to have hundreds of people before you and to be vulnerable to get up and do anything. Well, considering he also just did Equus a couple years before, so he was nude on stage. But anyway. But you yeah. know what I mean? Like any performer is, that is a, a skill that it deserves to be respected as a craft. And one of the ways that you as an audience member can show respect is not only, you know, paying your your dues of buying your ticket and, you know, applauding, but just treating the actors like humans because that's who they are. They're yeah. humans. Well, like I said, it just it really upset me that these people just kept calling him Harry because I was like, that's not his name. That's not what he's known by. That's not his name. You're really, it's really, really offensive. And the other thing I remember from that is just when he came out and we were in the front row, you just felt this, I mean, I've never felt it before, but it's just push from behind and there and, and there was nowhere for us to go if, if anything the barriers were going to get tipped over and it was like run for your life and i was like this is madness to the people in the very back do you really think anything's going to come of this there's no way the madness of it so i was just like oh this is insane and that for me was the beginning of the end i was just like i i can't do the big crowd i'm Maybe I'm getting old, but I was like, this is, it's a signature. He's not paying my bills. He's not going to get me work. Like, (laughs) it's a signature. And also, I don't sell my stuff. I don't sell it. No, I don't sell my collection. So for me, I was just like, this is a memory. It's cool, but it's a memory. It's a story. Now we're sharing the story, so. As the year has continued and we are now returning to the theater, we look forward to seeing the show again. I'm sure you'll be able to catch how to succeed in business without really trying at a theater near you sometime. Before we go, we want to invite you all to join us in celebrating Women's History Month, which starts on March 1st. Join us every Wednesday and Friday on our social media as we recognize significant women who help shape and define the theater, as well as shatter glass ceilings and level the playing field. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and still keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you.
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by U.S. Army Blues, Quantum Jazz, Mela, Kevin McLeod, and Billy Murray. <laughs>